0: Before my junior year in college, is this on? Okay, thank you. Before my junior year in college, um, there, was, there was a gathering of ministry leaders. I was a, a leader in a, in a ministry of the Seventh day Adventist Church called Literature Evangelism. And there was a gathering of these young ministry leaders, like myself at the time. Um, and uh, we all got together. And at this gathering, there was a guy who was about my age similar place in life. He was a ministry leader, and, um, and I'd heard about him before. I'd never met him before, but people had spoken to me about him in glowing terms. They said, he's an amazing visionary and works really hard, and um, people just love being around him. And a great, great ministry leader, and so I had this picture of this person in my thinking, and when I got to this gathering, he was there, and I, and I saw him and and had the chance to meet him, but when I first met him, the picture that I had of him in my mind was not what I saw. I don't know if you've ever had that experience before. You heard about some someone before, maybe never saw a picture of them, or whatever, and you finally get a chance to meet that person, and and it's like, well, this is not what I was expecting. That's what happened to me, and um, actually, the impression that I had of him was, was quite unfavorable. <laughs> um, I didn't see this person as someone that I would want to talk to. I-, I was thinking, wow, you know, this person, is, they're in ministry just like me, and, and man, it'd be great, you know, but, but my impression of him was like, who is this guy? I mean, I didn't really even want to have a conversation. I had several opportunities to have a conversation with this person. I didn't really take them. Um, because I wasn't interested, I I had this idea about him that he was just not somebody that I would find to be a friend. Well, even though I had a very un my my, my uh, imp- first impression of him was very very much not positive. Um, a little while later, when school started, I was going to a new college, and this guy happened to be going to that college, and. I was looking for a roommate to share rent with, housemate, and this guy just happened to be looking for a housemate to share rent with. And uh, before I knew it, I was sharing rent with this guy that I really didn't think I would ever want to be friends with. But very quickly after that, when we started sharing the same house together, I realized that I was dead wrong about this guy. That he, I found him to be intelligent, funny, hardworking, great person to hang out with. And those two years, those last two years in college, he and I actually became best friends. Best friends. After college, I was the best man in his wedding. Um, he officiated in my wedding. He dedicated my daughter, when she was a baby, dedicated her to the Lord, and we continued to be friends. And I, He's someone that I continue to deeply value as a friend in my life. And as I look back on that experience, I realized that I was blind. It was like I had my head in a box. My thoughts had so, were so off. My thinking kept me from seeing the reality of just how wonderful this human being is. And I completely misjudged him. And as a result, I almost lost out on a wonderful friendship. Um, the Bible describes, one of the ways that the Bible describes our relationship with God is in, in the terms of a friendship. Friendship. And it describes God as this amazing friend. He is faithful. He's always there. He's never going to be distracted, never too busy on another phone call to hear from He is faithful. He is there. God is understanding. God understands who you are. He gets it. He knows your joys. He understands your sorrows. He knows the things you like and that you don't like. He's care, he cares for those things. And God is gracious. Like, we can do some pretty offensive things, and God is such a good friend that he doesn't get offended. He doesn't hold grudges. And he doesn't make us pay penance or something like that before he'll talk to us. Like, he is an incredible friend. He's the best friend we could—he's the ideal friend. He's the best friend we could, we could ask for. But that being said, and, and, and recognizing that the Bible says that, have you ever thought that the act of talking to God, praying to God, is uninteresting? Have you ever had the opportunity to pray and not been interested in praying? Have you ever had the opportunity to listen to what God has to say to you in the Bible and found that to be a little bit dull and wishing that, you know, maybe it was a little more exciting? Um, you know, have you ever thought that, that God's plan for you just— isn't that great? And maybe that your plans for yourself would be better for you than God's plans for you. That maybe if you were to be a close friend with him, it might require that you go through something that is unpleasant, something that you wouldn't have chosen to do otherwise. Perhaps perhaps you can relate to some of those thoughts, and it's almost as if we can treat God like he doesn't deserve to be our friend. Almost like Maybe we wouldn't be interested in being friends with God. We can act in that way. The problem is is that we can misjudge God, just like I misjudged my friend. We can have thoughts about God that are completely detached from the reality of who he is. We can be blind to his true character. If we were to compare the spiritual life to a road, okay, the experience of knowing God, if we were to compare that to a road, there are a couple of ways that we can veer off the road and get stuck in the ditch. One way is to think that God is not good enough for us. Now, I know that might sound preposterous, but when we act in, in, a, in ways that, that say that, hey, well, I don't, I don't know if I trust God's plan for me. I don't know if I want to spend a whole lot of time with him in prayer really that's saying that God is not good enough for us, that we have something better going on. And so one of the ways that we can get off the spiritual path is to to act as if God is not good enough for us. Another way to get off the spiritual path is to think that we are not good enough for God. And if you could just notice both of these thoughts, that God is not good enough for us, like, he doesn't meet my criteria, he doesn't doesn't do what I want for him to do, or maybe I'm not good enough, the central theme behind both of those ways of thinking is me. It's a preoccupation with my perceptions, with my ways of thinking. It's like having a box over our head. So as we prepare for communion this morning, communion service, I'd like to look at a teaching from Jesus' uh, Jesus's life, one of Jesus' teachings, that shows us how any one of us, no matter what we've done, who we are, can, we can all be a friend of God. We can be best friends with God. And we can have the assurance, this is the thing that I really want to underline, we can have the assurance of a place in heaven, that our place is secure. That when Jesus comes for us in the clouds, that we can know for sure that we're going to go with him. God gives us, he gives us that that certainty um, in in the Bible. And so we're going to take a look at that. All right, so the title of the message this morning is Those Who Deserve God. And before we look at the scripture, I'd like to just pause for prayer. Heavenly Father, you know that we can think some really crazy things, some really inaccurate things about you and about ourselves. And so we want to recognize your presence here through your spirit. We pray that the Bible would just speak to us, that we would receive words of life this morning, that we would be assured of our friendship with you, and grow in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 22. If you want to use your pew Bible, it's page 990. And while you're going there, um, I'd just like to say that in Matthew 22, Jesus does something really important. He challenges Our thinking on who is deserving of heaven. What is the profile of a person that is deserving of heaven? Jesus is about to challenge this, this way of thinking of who deserves something and who doesn't deserve something. Okay, so typically we think of a deserving person as a good person, right? If someone is hardworking, if someone is honest, if someone is kind, we feel really good when someone like that succeeds in life. Why? Because they've earned it. They deserve, I mean, they're hard-working, but look at their day in and day out, and they're kind to people. Look, and, and now they've, they've made it in life. They're successful. They live in a nice house, or, or whatever it might be. They, they've got the new promotion at work, or, or they have a healthy family. We, we think of people like that as deserving, whereas if we saw someone who is just mean, someone who's lazy, someone who's dishonest, and, and they prosper, it's like, oh, I don't know if I feel so good about that. That doesn't seem right. The person who speeds past us and get pulled over by a police officer, oh, they, they, yeah, you get what you deserve there, buddy, right? We, we, we have this idea of deserving as based upon something that is earned. And that's fair, but Jesus' definition has, of who is deserving has nothing to do with what is earned. Those who are deserving of him, those who are deserving of heaven, have, has, it has nothing to do with what is earned. Now to explain this concept, Jesus uses a story, a parable. You find it in Matthew 22. He uses a story that is about a king and this king has a son. He's throwing a wedding banquet for his son. Now, in first century Judaism, people went all out for weddings, kind of like today, but they really outdo us. It was expected in the Jewish culture that when someone has a wedding, it would last 7 days. All the people that you invite, they're expected to stay for seven days. And so the preparations would be just huge, right? There would be preparations of food to last for seven days, of entertainment, musicians, um, all, all kinds of different things, decorations. It, it was just, they went all out for this. And because the person in Jesus' story is a king, we can know that the preparations were massive, that this was just, this was just the, the best, the best gathering, the best wedding banquet that you can possibly imagine. People who would go to this wedding banquet would never lack for food. They'd have to go on a diet for a month afterward. I mean, they would just have all the food that they could eat. It was just the best of everything. They, they could expect that there would be no shortage of goodness at this gathering. So he tells this story about this king that's, that's throwing this, this wedding banquet for his son. Now, it would have been a great honor to be on the guest list of a king's son's wedding. Great honor. And the people that are invited, if you read the story there, it's at the beginning of Matthew 22, the people that are invited, you get this sense that these are, they're kind of the who's who of the Jewish community. That's a story. But these, these people that were in, initially invited, they, they were business owners, they were landowners, they were leaders in their community. They were the kind of people that you would expect to be friends with the king. These were the upstanding people in society. But when the servants went out, all the preparations are finally made, and the food is ready, and, and, and everyone is called to come to this wedding banquet, the servants go out and they invite these guests that are on the king's wedding list, guest list. When the servants go out, the Bible tells us in verse 5 that the response of those who were invited was this, they paid no attention to the invitation. They paid no attention to the invitation. In other words, the king's banquet and being with the king was not good enough for them. They paid no attention. They had better things to do. And uh, if you, if you want to uh, look at it there, it's verses 5 and 6. Um, verse 5 says, they paid no attention. They went off. One to his field, another to his business. Verse 6, the rest seized his servants. So it wasn't that they just left. They were actually upset that these servants came and invited them. It's kind of a crazy story. It um, doesn't seem like that, was something that would be something that a person would get upset about. But they were so upset that, they, verse 6 says, they seized his servants. They mistreated them, and they killed, him. killed them. So the king is outraged. There's just incredible um, disrespect shown here. And and so in verse 7, he goes and and he burns their city. Then notice what it says in verses 8 and 9 of Matthew chapter 22. Listen to what the king says. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Verse 9. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. That's significant that now this king who represents God, I think you're getting that probably, this king who represents God, he says, those who I invited, they didn't deserve to come. Now this is what you do. Go out into the street corners and invite anyone you find. It's significant that when the king sends out his servants, he doesn't give them a list of criteria to look for in a person who is deserving. Notice that. Nothing is said about the type of person that the servants are supposed to go and invite. He doesn't say conduct an interview. He doesn't say go look at their church attendance. He doesn't say go look at their tithe. He doesn't say, go look at their criminal record. Like, nothing is said about the type of person that they're supposed to go and invite. He simply says, go to the street corners. In other words, go to the places where you're, where you're likely going to find the most people. And anyone you find, if they, if they are breathing, they qualify. Invite them to come to the banquet. Well, to understand the significance of this story, we need to know that, that in the Jewish mindset, in the biblical mindset, that weddings were symbolic of God's relationship with his people. The Old Testament prophets would speak about God as a groom, as a husband. And they would speak about his people, the, the nation of Israel, as his bride, as, as, as the wife of God, so to speak. So it, it described that. in That continues to happen in the New Testament. In fact, um, I'll put it up there, Revelation 19.9. This is the description of those people who make it to heaven, those people who are saved in the kingdom of God. John, the, the disciple of Jesus, is given a view into the future, and he sees these people in heaven with God, and this is what is said about those people. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's almost the same language. Blessed are those who are invited. These are the saved, those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus' story in Matthew 22 is about who makes it to heaven and who doesn't. That's what it's about. It's about who is saved in the kingdom of God and who is not. And if you have any questions in your mind about whether you're going to be saved or not, this is speaking to us. In Matthew 22, verse 8, to take you back there, Jesus describes those who do not deserve heaven. Look what it says. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. They did not deserve to come. Oh, wait a second. Why would he invite people who didn't deserve to come? Here's why. When he invited them, they deserved to come. But something took place in their life that disqualified them, that made them unworthy, that made them undeserving of heaven. What was it? When they were invited, they said no. And because they refused to come, it's those who refuse the invitation that are found to be undeserving. This is how we become undeserving of it. It's not whether we earn it or not. Who can earn it? Who could say, oh, I've kept all the Ten Commandments perfectly, and my mind never had a bad, never had a sinful thought? We cannot earn it, but we can undeserve it <laughs> um, if we uninvite ourselves to the wedding. According to Jesus, a person becomes undeserving when they refuse the invitation. Please turn with me to another passage. This is in, in, in the Gospels. This is John chapter 13 and verse 8. And while you're going there, I invite you to go there with me, please. While you're going there, the, the, the context is that th- this took place on the night before Jesus was crucified. He met with his 12 disciples for a special dinner. We call it the Last Supper. It was the Passover Supper, and it's safe to say that all 12 of those individuals did not deserve a place at the table. They didn't, and and I'll argue for that. Um, Not one of them deserved a place at the table. They were all slow to learn. They were slow to believe. You you, you read about it in in the Gospels. Jesus is like, oh, you were so slow to get it, These were not good students. They were quick-tempered. They were proud. They just, just before this, after being with Jesus in his ministry, seeing his life of humility, they were arguing about who's the greatest. That was still on their thinking. They they just didn't get it. Soon, just hours after this last supper gathering where he's, he's eating with his disciples, they would be running for their lives when an angry mob came to arrest Jesus. These guys, they didn't earn a place at the table. But despite their character flaws, Jesus invited everyone. Peter, you're going to deny me. You're invited. (laughs) Judas, you're going to betray me. You're invited. Thomas, you're going to have a hard time believing. In a little bit, you're invited. All you guys are going to run from me when a true friend would stand you're you're invited. Everyone is invited. And as they gathered there around the table, something, an issue came up. Proper hygiene required that their feet be washed before dinner, but no arrangements had been made for a servant to do. this, This is something that the lowest of slaves would do. No arrangements had been made. The disciples are basically rendered incapable of doing this job because they'd all just been arguing about who's the greatest. The first person to get down and and serve is going to be the first person to say, I'm not the greatest. No one's moving, and so Jesus gets up from the table. He grabs a water basin and and takes off his outer garment like a slave would, wraps himself with a towel, and begins to wash feet. And in that room, it's silent. They're they're all at a loss for words until Jesus gets to Peter in verse 8. It tells us the response of Peter to Jesus' invitation to wash his feet. This is what he says in verse 8. No. No, Jesus. No, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. To which Jesus responds. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. This is why Jesus is able to invite everyone. This is why everyone can come and be friends with Jesus. This is why everyone can have the assurance of salvation. Because it doesn't matter who you are, Jesus washes us and makes us worthy. But if we refuse that invitation, as he says to Peter, you have no part with me. Unless Jesus washes you, you have no part with him. And Jesus is the one that comes to every one of his disciples, undeserving though they might be, and he offers to wash their feet, the very feet that are about to run off and betray him. He washes those feet. Every one of those disciples who ran away from him, he washes them. And he says to Peter, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. We cannot earn our experience with God. We cannot earn our place in heaven, but we can receive him. We can accept his invitation and allow him to wash us. To prepare us to receive Jesus' invitation, because he's inviting everyone. He invites every one of us to follow him, just as he did the disciples. Follow him. Follow me, Jesus says, to every one of us, to prepare us to accept that invitation, to receive it. Jesus gives us a tangible act, a tangible way to receive him. He says, just as I have washed your feet, so also you should wash one another's feet. Just as he invited the disciples to follow, he invites us to do the same. He gives that same invitation. He says, wash one another's feet. So here at the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Medford Seventh-day Adventist Church, we follow Jesus' teaching. And in a moment, we're going to dismiss to wash one another's feet. Well, you'll actually, if, if this is the first time you've ever been to a service like this, you will have an opportunity to have your feet washed and to kneel before someone else and to wash their feet. Recognizing that it's not we who wash ourselves, but it's that Christ, it's Christ that washes us. And that he works through the hands and feet of his followers to wash others. Um...